From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, or highlights for Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, hospitals and clinics were forced to postpone non-essential appointments and surgeries in March and April. With newer, lower projections on the COVID-19 peak, Mayo Clinic is now prepared to not only meet the projected needs of COVID-19 patients, but to safely treat patients whose care was delayed and also to welcome new patients back as well. Joining us to discuss this is Chair of Mayo Clinic's outpatient practice, Dr. Connor Loftus. Dr. Loftus, welcome to the program. Morning, uh, Sanj. Thank you so much for the invitation to be on the show this morning. So, uh, Dr. Loftus, before we talk about the future, let's go back, back to March. Tell us sort of what sort of happened then, given how important and how busy the outpatient practice is to, to our patients. Tell us sort of what happened back then. So, um, firstly, I just want to thank you for the invitation to, to join this morning in the call. Uh, it's very, very important for our patients to know that we at Mayo Clinic are here and available to see them and provide the care that they need. All of our staff members are here and available and have responded with optimal safety to ensure that we're able to deliver the care that our patients need at Mayo Clinic. It's been a tumultuous uh, two months for everybody and those who are listening. I want to respect and appreciated everything that everybody has been going through for the last two months. It's really been a difficult time. But in times of difficulty, we pull together, we're strong, and we come out of these events stronger. Um, if we roll back to, I'm, I'm from Ireland originally, and I think of the week of St. Patrick's Day. It was right around that time St. Patrick's Day was on a Tuesday. That Monday was March uh, 16. And that was a, re- a week of real change. We had a very, very active uh, environment at the clinic that weekend. And at the time, if, if you recall, the external environment particularly was uh, very unpredictable. There was uh, the the coronavirus situation was evolving rapidly across the country. We were beginning to see activity here in our own environment at Mayo Clinic. And we we were scared, frankly. We were scared uh, and we didn't know what to do because this was an unforeseen event. That's not to say that we weren't prepared. We had prepared for events like this, but the gravity and the extent and the rapidity with which things were evolving uh, were, were such that for the safety of our patients, we felt it was really in the best interest of our patients, care team members and staff members alike, that we really reduced the scale of our practice massively and effectively overnight to protect the safety of our patients and care team members. So it was really driven by the, the external environment. The predictions at that time were such that we were, we were going to see a tsunami of, uh, of coronavirus activity within our working environment. So we needed to adopt rapidly 
to be ready for that, particularly in our hospital environment with ICU beds, but also in the outpatient practice. So it was the unpredictability of the external environment and what was potentially coming that really forced us for safety reasons to uh, really reduce the practice to its bare bones effectively. So you mentioned safety, obviously, for our patients and for our staff. As we've sort of, as we're bouncing back, can you tell us uh, the key fabric of Mayo Clinic is our staff. How have they responded? I want to quote Charlie Mayo here, and this has become a favorite uh, quote of mine uh, as we've worked through this. Uh, and Charlie Mayo said back in 1920 or 1930, he said, one of our greatest strengths is our ability to translate idealism into action. And boy, have we seen action over the past six or eight weeks. And we've seen action across the spectrum. From the standpoint of our staff members, our employees, staff members, it's been unbelievable what everybody has been willing to do. Number one, everybody respected our call for action that we needed to scale down the practice for safety reasons, for the safety of our staff, for the safety of our care team members, for the safety of our patients, of course. So we had to shut down our practice. That was tough for people. We go into medicine to care for our patients. Our patients need us. Our staff wanted to be here to see the patients. Um, but they were able to pivot. They were able to transition quickly. And the urgent patients that needed to be seen, we continue to see them here on campus. And, and the patients that did not need to be here on campus, we continue to reach out. Those who were scheduled, some of them we deferred uh, and we're rescheduling now. Uh, and those who still needed ongoing care, we cared for them through multiple uh, telemedicine modalities. So from our staff and employee and provider and care team members, they all re responded rapidly. They got established with telemedicine at home, with cameras, with telephonic abilities to remain connected with our patients. And so we were able to thankfully continue to care for our patients by other modalities. From the standpoint of those, we have tremendous teams of people who continued to work at Mayo to A, see the urgent patients on campus, and many providers were seeing patients at home. But then there were a number of teams working on multiple, multiple mitigation strategies that I'll perhaps speak about here shortly in terms of working to prepare the practice to reopen it at some point. Um, we had just a tremendous, tremendous pulling together in union of forces and other uh, you know, male brothers uh, euphemism in terms of just the, the strength of our staff at a time of difficulty was really, really impressive. The staff who were continued to see our patients and the staff who were here preparing the practice uh, to get back on its feet. Amen to that in terms of how the staff have worked diligently through this. You just alluded to the mitigation teams. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what you've seen happen over the last uh, several weeks? Really, it's been a period of preparation to reopen the practice. So um, if I roll back again that week of March 16, we were uh, putting our, um, our practice on hold before the executive order. So the executive order actually went into place on, on the night of Friday, March 27. So it was about 10 or 11 days later, not because of mail, but we, we all saw that coming. And so we were communicating out to our patients ahead of time, putting the brakes on the practice. Um, really, at, at the very beginning, it was caring for the patients who needed to see us during that time. We had many patients coming in with serious and complex disorders who needed to be here. And we needed to care for those patients in a safe manner. 
and so we were able to care for them in a safe manner. Uh, but then we had to think about um, many patients were deferred and, and deferred. We had patients here waiting in town with cancers that they wanted their cancer resected with serious disorders and they needed that care. They were sitting here oftentimes in town waiting for the care. So our, surgery, our surgeons uh, really led the charge in terms of reopening the practice and they said, boy, we need to get these patients into our operating rooms. We need to get the, the, the patients taken care of. So um, a wave of planning went into place in about the, the 10 days or two weeks leading up to the week of April 6th, particularly for our surgical patients. And we were able to uh, begin to reopen the surgical practice uh, with our surgical practice leadership uh, on Monday, April 6th. Um, so the surgeons, uh, and this was for urgent uh, operations that needed to, to take place. Elective surgical procedures, of course, were under the um, the, the executive order and there was no elective surgery, but urgent surgeries, particularly for patients with cancer and other serious and complex illness, began that week of April 6 and has been moving forward since then. So thankfully, we've been able to reach out and care for many, many patients with cancer and other serious disorders from the surgical standpoint. Following upon the surgical lead, we, we put plans in place to open the outpatient practice. Again, many patients have been deferred they can't be deferred indefinitely. And those patients who were deemed semi-urgent were becoming urgent. And so, and I can speak about it in a moment, we put multiple, multiple safety measures in place to ensure that we were able to, to bring back our, our outpatients as well. So beginning on Wednesday, April 15, we started to reach out to our patients. We said that we have multiple safety measures put in place. Our practice is safe. The patients who have been seen for the past number of weeks have been safe. Our surgical practice has reopened and has been safe, and now we're ready to reopen our outpatient practice. So we've been scheduling uh, beginning April uh, 15 for all of our outpatients, and uh, thankfully our patients uh, are, need our care. They're willing to come back. They are coming back. Our, our outpatient practice is back at 60 to 70% of its face-to-face -face volume currently and, and moving forward very safely and successfully, thankfully. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. So when you talk about the outpatient practice, obviously there's many moving parts. You know, we talk about patients coming into Mayo Clinic safely, being seen by their providers in clinic, moving seamlessly through the flow of Mayo Clinic, and then if it deems necessary, having surgery. Can you talk to us a little bit about the safety measures that you've implemented uh, for this to happen? Tremendous work has been uh, put in by many teams to ensure that we have optimized our safety for patients. And it really begins at the very beginning of the patient journey, when we call the patient to schedule an appointment, uh, we firstly have a screening mechanism when we call. We don't want to be um, overly invasive, but we want to ensure that the patient is safe to travel. We want to ensure that our, our environment uh, safety is optimized and our care teams are safe as well. So we, we have a, a questionnaire, a screening uh, questionnaire, where we ask questions with regards to the symptoms of maybe related to coronavirus. We ask if there were any exposures or household contacts. And a series of questions takes place on the telephone as the appointment is being made. We also educate our patients at that time with regard to some of the changes that they can expect when they come to, to Mayo, particularly with respect to universal masking. So we do ask that all patients are masked and we ask that all visitors are masked uh, on the campus and all of our employees are, of course, 
mast as well. And that has been a tremendous benefit in terms of reducing risk. We also inform our patients and visitors that unfortunately at this time we can't allow a lot of visitors on campus. In the outpatient practice, we allow one visitor with a, with a patient and in the hospital environment, there are no visitors uh, with the patients. There are exceptions, a, a small, small number of exceptions that have to be signed off upon on a case-by-case -case basis. So that first telephone, is the telephone call is the initial level of screening. Before the patient uh, arrives, we again reach out to the patient 48 hours before their appointed time. Because you can imagine there may be three or four or more weeks between the time of the appointment and the time the patient is physically due to be here, and things can change. So we reach out to the patient 48 hours before they're arriving. We again screen them thoroughly with the, the same questionnaire as on, on, at the time of appointment. We actually then proceed, if they have passed that questionnaire for the second time, we proceed with a virtual check-in process. So we actually go through their medications, we go through their check-in virtually at 48 hours prior to appointment, such that when they arrive, their, their movement through the clinic is more efficient and less face-to-face -face contact with our check-in process physically and with our staff members when the patient is here. So once they've gone through the 48-hour check, then they arrive on campus and we have additional screening as the patient arrives on campus. I just walked by our, our Ganda lobby front door and it was quite busy down there. We've got screening with multiple uh, staff members and nursing staff right there where we ask the questions again. Um, we actually measure the patient's temperatures and visitors' temperatures as they're arriving on campus. That's not with a thermometer. That's with an infrared screening device. We effectively just screen your forehead and we can tell your temperature very quickly. And then for the fourth level of screening, we actually uh, question the patient again as they arrive at, the, at our desks at Mayo Clinic uh, to ensure that, again, with, that, 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 that there are no symptoms that uh, are going to compromise safety. So you can see it's, it, it's very, very, very thorough and thankfully has been very effective. And I would pay tremendous credit to our patients who have been so patient through all of this and they understand and they're willing to go along with all of this to ensure that they and our staff members remain safe. So the screening mechanisms are extremely, extremely thorough, number one. Number two, Universal masking, that has been huge. All patients, all visitors, all employees masked. That's a, a, a huge, uh, huge change, but also a very, very, very important in terms of eff efficacy. And then the other, the two other big spaces, one is management of our patients and facilities. As our patients are on campus, we ensure that social distancing is maintained. We ensure that we don't have crowds of patients in waiting areas or in uh, phlebotomy areas or any place else. We have uh, uh, colleagues from, or from various teams helping our patients to ensure that they remain masked, that they remain socially distanced, offering uh, hand sanitizers. And if we do, we're observing patients as they go through the process as well. If we observe any patient that's coughing or maybe symptomatic, we actually um, ask them to step aside and we put them through an additional, more thorough screening mechanism as well. So multiple, multiple steps. And the final step is patients who are coming in for a surgery uh, or for higher risk procedures. So if a patient is going to surgery, they're tested uh, with a nasopharyngeal swab two days before surgery to ensure that they don't have coronavirus. Likewise, patients who are going through a number of different procedures are tested 
uh, ahead of time to ensure that they don't have coronavirus because it's very important that those patients are, are managed in an appropriate way. So multiple, multiple steps to enhance uh, safety of patients and, and care team members alike. And thankfully, our, uh, this has been quite successful and our, our, our environment has been safe and our patients are moving through quite well currently. Can you talk to us a little bit when the actual patient then sees the provider? Uh, how, what are the safety measures that have been implemented there? You talked about everybody being masked, which is obviously key. What else have you noticed? Our check-in process is as it was before in terms of uh, screening. So we ask the questions again at the desk. Uh, the rooming staff will then bring the patient to the room. What is uh, different now is that in our rooms, the patients who are familiar with our rooms, we maintain social distancing within the room. The, the provider is masked. The patient is seated at six feet from the provider, so a little bit further down the bench as opposed to at the, at the near end of the bench to the provider. And if the visitor, the visitor may attend in the room if they wish. Uh, if the visitor is in attendance in the room, the visitor is not seated on the couch. The visitor is, is seated off to the side on a separate seat or in the corner, such that we maintain social distancing in the room. The interaction itself, we, we always maximize our hygiene measures with hand washing and patients may, may, may notice providers and others hand washing even more, hand sanitizers are being, are being offered, but the actual patient interaction is as it has always been at Mayo Clinic. We want to spend time with our patients, we want to ensure that they get the best care possible, we want to listen to our patients, we want to examine our patients, and all of these measures take place as, all, as they always do. And then when we leave the office, we, as we always do, we walk the patient back to the, back to the desk and we communicate with our care team members, and the patient proceeds through their itinerary as they always have done. And this is the, we, our multidisciplinary practice is operating as it always has. We have access to all of the services that we need, our surgical colleagues, our procedural colleagues, all of our specialists are available, all of our various services and care team members are available to ensure that the patient who comes to Mayo Clinic gets the best care, gets the best care possible. I would just extend tremendous thanks across the board. Uh, for, firstly, to, to you, Dr. Kikar, and to your, your colleagues for arranging uh, this interview. Um, it's extremely important that our patients know that we're here for them. We're always here for them in times of difficulty. We're here to, to be a guide and to be of help in any way we can. Mayo Clinic is safe. We're here to care for all patients' needs now. I also want to thank any staff members who are listening. Our staff have been absolutely unbelievable in their response across the board to ensure that we are able to continue in our mission, our mission in clinical practice, our mission in education, and our mission in research, to continue to advance medicine to care for all the patients who need us. Our thanks to Chair of Mayo Clinic's Outpatient Practice at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Connell Loftus. Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, almost 15.7 million people in the U.S. report they've been diagnosed with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. One of the most common forms of COPD is emphysema. Symptoms include breathing difficulty, cough, mucus production, and wheezing. But a minimally invasive procedure is helping many patients breathe easier, says Dr. Sebastian Fernandez-Busi, a Mayo Clinic pulmonary and critical care physician. The procedure, which is called 
endoscopic lung volume reduction can improve symptoms of emphysema for people who no longer respond to medical treatment. Now, during the procedure, the patient's under anesthesia, and doctors insert a small scope through the mouth to the lungs. Then they place one-way valves in the lungs that allow air to escape that has entered the lungs through holes that develop during emphysema. Dr. Fernandez-Busi says with time, the part of the lung with the most emphysema will shrink, and that will allow the rest of the lung with less emphysema to have more space to expand and function, and people will get better breathing and a better quality of life. Now, the procedure is not a cure, but it can help improve symptoms of emphysema for many suffering from it. And in other news, butter is a dairy product made from the milk or cream of a cow. Margarine is made from vegetable oil. They may look similar and may be used similarly for baking and cooking, but when it comes to heart health, that's where the similarities end. So what's better for you, a pat of butter or a spread of margarine? Well, it depends, says Catherine Zaratsky, a Mayo Clinic registered dietitian nutritionist. So when we think about butter and margarine from a health perspective, particularly a cardiovascular health perspective, margarine seems to have a bit of an advantage, said Zaratsky. It comes down to good fats versus bad fats. So margarine is likely to have more unsaturated fat, whereas butter is going to have saturated fat. Now, saturated fat is known to raise bad cholesterol and low-density lipoprotein, or LDL cholesterol. And not all margarine is the same, though. Zaraski says look for a margarine that comes in a tub rather than a stick form. Having a softer, more liquid-type product is a better option because it's going to contain more unsaturated fats. So does that mean you should forego butter completely? Well, butter, although not considered heart-healthy, is really enjoyable for some people. They like the taste. And so Zaraski says the portion becomes especially important in that case. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Endoscopic skull-based surgery. Now, let me try to explain that because it's our topic today. An endoscope is a slender tube-shaped instrument, like a small telescope with a light on it that's used to look inside the body cavity or an organ. So a medical or a surgical procedure any of any type that uses an endoscope is called an endoscopy. All right. Now, the skull base, it is the part of the skull that supports the brain, and it separates the brain from the rest of the head. It okay. actually only only takes up the upper part the brain only takes up the upper part of the head and the blood vessels that go from the heart up to the brain and the nerves that come out of the brain uh, they go through little holes in the skull base this is so, starting to make me nervous uh, put it in all together well <laughs> hopefully you never need whatever we're going to talk right. about putting it all together surgeons are using small tubes small telescopes with lights on them to operate on tumors in and around the base of the skull now that takes some precision and some skill. Absolutely. And you don't want just anyone doing that if you are the patient. <laughs> you got that right. Joining us in studio to tell us more about endoscopic skull-based surgery are Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Jamie Von Gompel, and ear, nose, and throat surgeon, Dr. Garrett Choby. Welcome both of you to the studio. Thanks for having us. Good to have you, gentlemen. So there must be a reason there are two of you here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, these surgeries are as complicated as you were suggesting, and they just uh, can't be done with one person, I think. And yeah. who does what? We uh, do a lot of things together. Uh, I sort of get Dr. Van Gumpel through the nose to the area of the tumor. Then we work uh, hand-in-hand to address and resect the tumor. 
We also work hand-in-hand to close any defect or hole that we may have created during the surgery. So when you say through the nose, is it through the nostril, or do you actually lift the nose up and get in there? The nose is actually a lot bigger than you think. Uh, so the nose that we think of in the front of the face is very a very small part of the nose. We do access everything through the nostrils, so no external incisions for these surgeries. And we open up the sinuses that uh, line the in, in the nasal cavity, if you will, and really sit up against the skull base. And we use those sinuses as a corridor to get to these tumors. I kind of wish I would have called in sick today. <laughs> and how far, how far back in do you go to get to where you need to be? You know, it depends on what we're treating. You know, sometimes we're treating something just behind the eyes or just around the eyes. Sometimes we're going as as much as 12 or or 14 centimeters into the head when we go down to the odontoid or the bottom part of the skull base. So that's like five or six inches. So how did you used to do this operation before you had these little scopes? Well, you know, sometimes we made incisions elsewhere on the head and, 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 you know, took some skull off and then pushed the brain out of the way. Or alternatively, some of the approaches were done by actually taking part of the face off. And these approaches allow us to mitigate a lot of the problems that we saw with those types of uh, procedures that they did back in the 80s and early 90s. What are you trying to get at? I'm assuming tumors, but what are you looking for? So we treat a variety of different things. Um, So we treat Things that aren't tumors sometimes, like spontaneous CSF leaks together, benign pituitary. Spontaneous CFS leaks. Explain that to us. So sometimes uh, the skull base just gives up and doesn't keep the fluid inside the head. and uh, we... So there's fluid around the brain mm-hmm. and around the spinal cord, and it, and it leaks sometimes? Yeah, and it's, it's supposed to be around the brain. It's, it kind of acts as a natural buffer for the brain, and just once in a while the, 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 uh, the bone breaks down and the, the covering around the brain breaks down, and you can't have that leaking into the nose because that could lead to infections. So we treat a lot of those types of things together. Leaks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. so yeah. cerebral spinal fluid leak. That so, and how does someone present with that? Is it something that's coming out of their nose, and you figure out, ooh, this is cerebral spinal fluid? Yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, so most patients with the problem present with leakage of clear fluid out of one nostril, almost like a faucet. Wow. And uh, classically, it's related to a disease of elevated intracranial pressure, which can over time thin the bone of the skull base. That eventually, as Dr. Van Gumpel mentioned. Uh, the bone around the, the skull base and the dura, or the lining around the brain, can give way, and then they spring a leak in the nose. All right. What else do you work on in there? So a lot of tumors, most of them are benign tumors, like pituitary tumors, uh, craniopharyngiomas, uh, but also some tumors that can be cancerous, like cordomas. And, uh, Cytonies and malignancies as well. Craniopharyngioma. Tell us what that is. That a, <laughs> is that benign? Sounds like it. So it's a tumor that doesn't go elsewhere in the body, but it grows uh, locally. It can cause some problems. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a developmental rest that grows into a tumor over time. And they can be really challenging mm-hmm. tumors to treat, quite honestly. And tell us how you prepare to do this and how you discover what the lesion is and where it is. Most of these uh, come to it, we're, so we're obviously at a, at a quaternary care facility. Most of these are recognized elsewhere, but a lot of the patients come in either with problems with their pituitary gland, headaches, or alternatively vision problems. And once those are discovered and worked up by another doctor, they come in oftentimes with an MRI, and uh, we don't have to do an awful lot of diagnostic workup. But then they meet with both of us, and sometimes other uh, doctors, because mm-hmm. these lesions are that complicated that we need input from a variety of people. 
and then we put together a surgical plan and and, uh, and execute it to the best of our abilities. Yeah. And once you're in there, I understand that you can actually use a CT scan in the operating room or get an MRI in the operating room to help you further visualize and, and determine exact location? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great process that we have. We have the ability to use intraoperative navigation. So use a patient's uh, very own CT scan or MRI scan. We can register it with their own body in the operating room and then use a probe, if you will, that will show us where we are in their head or the skull base in direct correlation to their CT scan. So it's sort of real-life anatomic visualization in both the patient as well as their radiographic study. Most commonly, we use CT scans, but MRI scans are also possible. In most of these lesions, do you suck them out with that instrument, or how do you get them out? Yeah, thank God. Most of them are suckable. Um, you know, that, that, that does help a lot of these procedures because they can be removed. And, I, and I'm assuming that you've seen cordomas in the past. Um, Not most, in that location, but yeah, yeah, they can occur anywhere. Practically, but, but uh, most most of them are are suckable lesions, mm-hmm. but not all of them. In fact, we've run across some very difficult ones that are firm, fibrous, very bloody, and realistically, those are the ones that really test a team like yeah. ours' abilities and uh, really take a lot of thought and, and forethought into the procedure. Well, this certainly is better than having to cut off part of the face to access <laughs> where you're at. So mm-hmm. I'm not a medical person, but I can at least get that that makes a lot of sense. But what are complications that might come up? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. We, we have to work, you know, obviously very carefully in these areas. And Dr. Van Gumpel and I are big believers in uh, a co-pilot technique, if you will. So it's not simply that we both have complementary skill sets surgically, but it's really our two minds working together, if you will. So thinking about problems and addressing them and sort of bouncing ideas off of one another. So in these anatomic regions, the most common things that can arise as a complication of surgery are damage to very important arteries that live nearby, or cranial nerves, nerves that control much of the function in the head and neck region. Uh, most commonly in this particular region, it may be things related to vision, but certainly other deficits can occur as well. All right, so you got four hands and you got two brains. It's uh, <laughs> the epitome of the team approach at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Endoscopic skull base surgery using lighted scopes to remove tumors in a very difficult location. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Von Gomble and ENT surgeon Dr. Garrett Choby. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for being here, guys. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the field of forensic pathology. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Forensic pathologists, they perform post-mortem exams or autopsies to determine the cause of death. They study tissues from the body and laboratory results to figure out how someone died. Sounds like a great job, doesn't it? Well, maybe that's why there are less than 500 board-certified forensic pathologists in the country. And one of them is with us, Mayo Clinic forensic pathologist, Dr. Reed Quinton. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back. (laughs) Dr. Quinton, great to see you. So, forensic pathologist, tell us about your training. Most of us, or all of us, have to start within the field of pathology. So, uh, Uh, But you've got an MD degree first. That is correct. Okay, then a residency in pathology. Correct. So, MD first, then uh, most people do a combination of anatomy and clinical pathology, uh, which is a four-year residency program. There is some mix and match there. So some people might do like anatomic pathology and neuropathology or anatomic pathology and pediatric pathology. So what exactly does that mean? Each one of those is 
in some ways, subspecialties within pathology. Anatomic deals with organ systems, deals with the big things. So, for instance, surgical pathology, looking at biopsies, looking at surgical specimens, but it also covers autopsy. Uh, the clinical pathology deals with all of the laboratory management, so blood bank, mm-hmm. yes. uh, that type of thing. And then within anatomic, there are subspecialties like forensic pathology, but also neuropathology or pediatric pathology, things like that. I'm surprised to hear that there is a shortage because uh, the CSI effect, so to speak. I mean, but that doesn't translate over into what you do? Not necessarily. It's the CSI effect is real for sure. Um, And a lot of people become interested, at least in science, because of that to some degree. It's almost unusual that uh, if you look at television across the board, I would think forensic pathologists are probably the most represented uh, physicians uh, on television, and yet we're a very small community. Uh, but yeah, uh, kids get interested in it, and then they oftentimes find out what it takes to get to that point and mm-hmm. decide, eh, maybe that's not for me. <laughs> so you're talking about four years of medical school, four years of pathology, then four more years? No. Uh, usually after the four years of pathology, it might be uh, for forensic pathology, it's a one-year fellowship if oh, they okay. only do that fellowship. So five years of residency. Yeah, then, roughly, about. Yes. You must know this woman. I saw a book recommended, Judy Melanick, since there's only 500 of it. You right. know Judy? She I know, wrote this uh, book, Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies in the Making of a Medical Examiner. Yes. Uh, Judy's actually uh, on the board of, uh, of the National Association of Medical Examiners with me. So we're both board members. The book is, I think, important in that every generation, there's usually one book that kind of makes people read it and go, ooh, I might be interested in this. And I had you know, my books at the time that kind of pushed me in that direction. And this is sort of the updated version of that. Uh, her, her book covers uh, her fellowship. It's just simply during her fellowship. But that fellowship for her happened to occur in New York right around 9-11 and all those events, too. Mm-hmm. But so. there's some interesting stories in that book. Well, put it on your Christmas list. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. How do you do an autopsy? Well, uh, it's, it's kind of a complicated question. Uh, <laughs> but in general, uh, there's two big parts of it. There's the external examination and the internal examination. The external examination is categorizing everything from identifying features, so hair color, eye color, <laughs> tattoos, things like that, to looking at injuries or evidence of natural disease. The internal examination is what everybody thinks of, which is the actual performance of the evisceration, where we remove the organs and look at each organ individually. Uh, That tends to take longer, but it depends on the case. So, for instance, if it is a homicide with multiple gunshot wounds or multiple injuries, the external actually takes much longer than the internal examination. Uh, so, But those are the two parts. Within that also are ancillary studies. So we may do radiology. We may do uh, uh, extensive toxicology testing or other things. Toxicology, meaning you're looking for drugs or chemicals, or, correct. et cetera. That's correct. Are there different kinds of autopsies? I mean, you don't do the same kind of autopsy on everybody, right? Uh, no, they, there are different uh, autopsies. The two main sort of uh, venues, if you will, are the hospital autopsy versus the forensic autopsy or medical legal autopsy. The hospital autopsies are very different in that they are actually made or done 
at the request of the patient's family. So uh, we approach that family after the patient has died and then explain what the possible benefits of the autopsy are. Yeah, what are the benefits? Uh, well, a lot of things. Uh, in, in the hospital scenario, uh, we can answer questions about what exactly happened because maybe they're not clear on, on what the mechanism was of death, but also they may have questions about uh, genetic disorders. Is this something that may affect the rest of my family? Uh, infectious disease? Uh, so a lot of different things we may be able to sort of help them walk through at the end. Uh, the big difference between the two types of autopsies is that hospital autopsies are consented by the family. So the family basically gives us permission to do that procedure, whereas forensic cases, we have a mandate by the state to mm -hmm. perform those cases. Mm -hmm. And if the family objects, we have to have a dialogue with them to sort of work out what can we do, what can't we do. Uh, but in general, we have to, uh, uh, if we have to do a case, we have to do a case. When it comes to children, um, how do you determine in an autopsy if they died of SIDS or not? Um, SIDS is an interesting thing because it's not a diagnosis. We all make it a diagnosis, but it's actually a classification. Sure. It originally was created as a terminology to identify a group of infants that died suddenly and unexpectedly during sleep, but nobody knew why. The tricky part about this is that as we identify causes of death, we actually exclude those cases from the SIDS category, oh. so they're no longer SIDS. Over the years, it became sort of morphed in a way into a diagnosis, which is really interesting because when I talk to a family and I'm trying to explain that your infant died of you know sudden infant death syndrome or sudden unexplained infant death, there's many different categories there or classifications, I'm basically saying we don't know why your infant died. And I think a lot of families, as soon as they hear that terminology, for some reason it gives them comfort because they've heard it on television. They understand, oh, that's a thing, but it's it's kind of not. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to re-educate uh, and, and sort of explain to people today that SIDS is not necessarily a diagnosis, and we're trying to identify what is it that causes it. But the truth is it's, it's a large constellation of findings. It could be genetic disorders. It could be unsafe sleep environment or what have you. So are you telling us that sometimes you do an autopsy on a SIDS uh, patient and it's negative? You don't find anything? That's the actual definition of a SIDS case is oh, that okay. after a complete scene investigation and autopsy, the findings are negative. So tell us about one of your most interesting cases. I love the cases where something just incredibly odd or unique happened that maybe we didn't know about until we did the autopsy, which really mm -hmm. speaks to the value of the autopsy. And I actually had skydiving accident. Uh, the mm. people on the ground observed that the parachute deployed and the person on the parachute just never moved again. And he just slowly drifted to the ground and they all rushed over and he was essentially dead at the scene. Well, it turned out that his parachute had not been packed properly. So parachutes tend to incrementally deploy. They, they don't just burst open. If you watch video of them, they sort of puff out a little bit at a time. His was packed in such a way that the entire parachute just immediately opened all at one time. When it did, it tore his 
aorta in three places. Mm. So he actually died from uh, an aortic dissection or transection, I should say. And that's say. the big artery that Correct. Comes, comes so, right out of your heart. Oh right, right. Mystery solved. Yep. yep, you figured it out. <laughs> Forensic pathologists, their job is to figure out how someone died based on autopsy and laboratory results. It's a fascinating job. And I think if you're willing to go through all of the training, let's see, it's four years of medical school, four years of residency, another year of specialized training, I think for sure you can get a job. <laughs> that is true. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic forensic pathologist, Dr. Reed Quinton. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.